Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the passage that Paul read for us this morning. And truly thank him for his prayer and reading scripture today. Turn there, if you would, with me to Romans chapter 3. We're in a series in the book of Romans. If you're a guest today and uh, making this journey. And so this morning we come to this passage. And as we do, I want to tell you the story of Judith Eli. Judith Eli. Now, Judith lived in a large but very dilapidated and run-down mansion. And Judith was known for always wearing around town very elegant but very old and outdated and shabby clothing. She had a constant disheveled appearance about her, especially wild, unkept hair. Most of the time her face was dirty, never known to be wearing any makeup, But the rest of the story is this. That mansion that she lived in all alone was filled with hundreds of beautiful, ornate mirrors. You see, her family, the Eli family, for generations were the makers of the most beautiful custom mirrors in the world. And their family home, that mansion, her residence, was now full of these, but here she was, the descendant of the people who were the source of the world's most beautiful mirrors. Yet she walks the streets in unstylish clothes, Unkept appearance, unwashed face. Now, if you want to, I encourage you, do a media search for Judith Eli. But I will tell you something. You won't find her. The reason you won't find her is because I made her up. Well, I should say I made up her name, in a sense. Judith Eli. Judith being the feminine name for Judah. Judah means praise. Her last name, Eli, is from the word Elohim. Hebrew word, which means... God, or God Almighty. She's the praise of God. She's Judith Eli. But the lesson applies that I want to make this morning. Judith Eli, like some people, 
who have been given the mirror of God's truth. Not only refuse to display it to the world for his praise, but they refuse to look into it. Oh, they own many, many of the mirrors of God's truth. But they don't display it and they refuse to look into it. My friends, truth is a mirror. And truth is sometimes bad news. But God's truth, which is, yes, bad news, leads to God's good news. God's good news. You see, what was read this morning here and what we're going to look at is bad news for all people. The hedonist, the moralist, the religionist. It's bad news for all people. Why? So the good news from God can come to all people. And so today I want us to look at this passage under this heading, the mirror of God's truth. The mirror of God's truth. And I want you to notice that Paul says a couple of things about the mirror of God's truth that he has been holding up since chapter 1, verse 18. And he's going to hold it up a little bit longer. I want you to see, first of all, that he is doing this and he is showing the value in possessing the mirror of truth. The value in possessing the mirror of truth. Now, I hope that you know that the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest minds that ever lived. Even people who have no belief in the Christian faith, who are honest after having read Paul and understand his impact on the Roman world, would say he had one of the greatest minds of all history. He had one of the greatest minds in Jewish theology. He was handpicked of the millions of Jewish young men to be one of the handful to study under the great and greatest teacher of the day, Gamaliel. He was incredibly brilliant in Jewish theology. And at the same time, he was brilliant and an expert in Greek philosophy and in oratory. So in Saul of Tarsus, you had combined one of the greatest theologians the world has ever known, an incredibly gifted philosopher 
and an amazing orator all wrapped into one. And I want you to see in verses 1 through 8, those gifts are on full display. Full display. And we get an opportunity as nowhere else in Paul's writings to listen to the workings of his mind. Verses 1 through 8 actually tells us how Paul, in a way, is working out this, this message. And his mind is carrying out inside, and his words are speaking, and either he's writing or the one who's taking down his message as he paces back and forth and shares it, is actually carrying out a debate. Paul is carrying out a debate in his mind, and he already knows what the objections are going to be. He already knows what the people who are not going to agree with what he has to say are going to say. How does he know that? Because he used to be one of them. He was the most Jewish Jew who ever lived. No one compared to him in his commitment to Judaism. And now he knows what his fellow Jewish people, and he also knows what the Greek mind, the Gentile mind, is going to say. And so he anticipates their objections, and then he answers them. This is what a skilled debater will do. Understand what objections are going to be, valid objections, and then overcome them with logic and truth. And that's what Paul does. So there's four objections here to what he's been saying. What's he been saying? He's been saying the hedonists of the world who suppress God's truth are under his judgment. The moralists of the world who think they're better than the hedonists, who are actually practicing many things the hedonists are practicing, they're under God's judgment. And the Jewish people of the world, who are trusting in that they are Jewish, and think they're better than the moralists and the hedonists, they're also under judgment. And so, Paul says... I understand the objections. What are they? Objection number one. Well, then there's no advantage to being a Jewish person. What advantage is there to being a Jewish person? What shall we say? What advantage has the Jew? Or the value of circumcision, this right of the Jewish ancestry and faith. What use is it? You could almost put it this way today to make us comprehend it. What's the value of religion? What's the value of being a religious person? What's the value of having all of these rights of our religion? And Paul's answer is this. Much in every way. There's so many advantages that have been given to the chosen people, the Jewish people, 
one supreme overall. What was their greatest advantage overall? Verse 2. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had been given the oracles of God. The word oracles here is the word lagia, lagia. And it means divinely authoritative communication. They had been given, as the NIV, the New International Version, translates it probably best. They had been given the very words of God. Those were given to the Jewish people and through the Jewish people. The very words of the living God were given to them. Now that's an advantage. What advantage it is to be a person who has been given the very words of God. What an advantage to someone. Who not only owns many copies, but regularly attends on services and gatherings where the very words of God will be taught, read, and brought forward as exhortation. That's quite an advantage, isn't it? So he says, what's the second objection? Well, God's not faithful to his promises then. Look at this, verse, verse 3. What if some, some whom, some of the Jewish people were unfaithful? Does this faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Do you see the question behind the question? And Paul's going to deal with it later. Later. In Romans, well, if most of the Jewish people have not received the Messiah, and as Jesus is the Messiah promised by the Lord, and if the vast majority of his people didn't receive him, then has God been faithless to his promise to his people? And Paul's response absolutely not. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What's he saying? Listen carefully. The unfaithfulness of people to the word of God they received does not make the one who gave the word of God faithless. God is faithful, though all people lie. And we all do lie. But He is God, and He lies not. He's the true God. That's the second objection. What's the third objection? Here's the third objection. It's a little more challenging. Follow it carefully. If... If people's failures then, Paul, okay, if people's failures exalt God's glory, or that is, display just how just he is, if that's what you're saying, well, then how can God punish them? So if people have rejected his word, 
and their rejection shows that he's just, well, then how can God judge them when they display his justice by rejecting him? I told you, Paul's a smart fellow. (laughs) Verse 5, he says it this way. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? God's the judge. (laughs) It sounds like a valid objection when you think it out. Sounds like something that might be taught and exams be given on in a college philosophy class. Taught by someone with a PhD. But think about it. It's just like saying this. You have your favorite restaurant. You love that restaurant. You've been going to it for years. You dream about it. (laughs) You can't hardly drive by it. I've got some of you thinking about it right now. You love it. You tell everybody about it. And then you go one day to enjoy your meal and there's a big score from the health inspector, 59. (laughs) Would you say, how could the health inspector ruin this for me? How terrible of the health inspector. How could he write such a number and put it on the wall? The answer, he's the health inspector. (laughs) He's not the customer experience evaluator. (laughs) Oh, 99% of the people who come here love this stuff, even though they've never looked in the kitchen. So let's not upset their customer experience by telling them it's a wreck back there. Your dog wouldn't sleep back there. (laughs) My friends, listen. God is not the customer experience evaluator. Is everybody happy? God's the judge. And what does a judge do? He judges based on justice, righteousness. What an audacious thing to say that God finding people guilty for violating His law in in the conscience, in creation, and in the Old Testament Scriptures somehow makes God the bad guy. Sort of like saying, how can they have services like that? Make people feel bad. (laughs) Why would anybody listen to that person. 
Objection number four. Now carefully follow this one. Okay, Paul. Well, if my lie then, okay, I'm sinning. I'm a sinner. You said I am. If my lie, my sin, glorifies, makes known God's truth, how can I be condemned as a sinner? <laughs> After all, Paul, isn't this your message? That where sin abounds, grace abounds. So, let's just glorify God all the more by sinning more. And Paul says, in effect, oh, you deserve to go to hell for that. <laughs> he says, your condemnation is just. Amen. He says it like this, look. Verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie, my sin, God's truth, his righteousness abounds to his glory. If, if, I, if his victory over sin is, is made known through my sin. Well then. Why am I condemned as a sinner? As a matter of fact. If my sin glorifies his salvation. Uh, well let's just sin all the more. The good may come. As some people have slanderously taught, said that I am teaching. Paul lived with this all the time. People saying this is what he taught. Libertarianism. Sin big. Because you make God big. When he shows his mercy. You know, you, you, you think through that and you'd say, how, don't you say, how in the world could people ever get like that? Don't you? You say, how could people ever think like that? You, you know, it, it would be thinking like this. I know. Uh, let's find the most immoral people we can find who publicly and privately regularly break the laws of God and man and let's invite them to our church conferences. Let's invite them to our denominational gatherings. Let's let them speak at our Christian colleges and make them the moral standard bearer for God's church. You see, he's so bad they are, they are so bad, they make God look good. They should carry the banner for us. When the church, when the church thinks like that, They've joined the world in the moral basement. Look at chapter 1, verse 32. What's the moral basement? Look at it. I'm telling you, look at it. Here's the moral basement. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We want to read through chapter 1 and be selective about some of those sins. But when we need people to carry the standard for the church in the world, we'll take whoever's got the power and whoever's mean enough. We need to understand this before we yield as a church our responsibility to uphold God's truth and the mirror to ourselves and to everybody else. And the only person that is our standard bearer, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What a treasure to have this mirror of truth. Amen. What a, what a, what a treasure. But something is even more precious than Having this mirror of truth, it's this. It's having from God the grace to value the using the mirror of God's truth. The grace it takes not just to possess the mirror, but to actually look in it myself. <laughs> and then with love, hold it up. So that people will find no hope but in Christ, in his grace. This is what Paul says. This is why he's doing this. Why is Paul talking this way? Why, why is he being so strong about God's holiness and man's sinfulness? God's truth and man's deceit. Why is he speaking so strongly against the hedonism and the moralism and the religiousism? Because he wants people to see the true standard. So then, then they'll turn to the one hope and true hope. Verses 9 through 20, we see the value of using the mirror of God's truth. Paul holds up God's mirror so mankind can see the truth. Now friends, by God's grace, let's take a good look in the mirror of God's truth. And when you take a good look in the mirror of God's truth, you're going to see that it's a three-way mirror. Three-way mirror. And it gives three glimpses. It gives three glimpses of mankind's condition before a holy God. What, what is mankind's condition 
before a holy God? Well, here's three glimpses of it. Number one, we have a glimpse at the character of mankind's condition. A glimpse at the character of mankind's condition. Verses 9 through 10. Look, if you would, chapter 3, 9 through 10. Here's the character of mankind's condition. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged. This is what we've been saying. That all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, before the mirror of God, before the standard of God, all ground is level ground. <laughs> Are we any better? Are we any better because of our ancestry? No. Why are we not any better just because of our ancestry? Paul says it, because we're all under sin. Do you see that? We're all under sin. Notice it does not say we're all under sins. Plural. We're all under sin. Sin here means the dynamic of sin. The powerful dynamic of sin. And under it means under the power of sin. So what is mankind's condition before God's truth? His character. They are all under the power of sin apart from his grace. Now what Paul is describing here, friends, listen carefully, is what theologians refer to as total depravity. Total depravity. What does total depravity mean? Well, first of all, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that someone who's totally depraved is as bad as he or she could possibly be. It doesn't mean that everyone is equally bad. Because that's not true. Here's what it means. Total depravity means this. Man's mind, mankind, man's mind, his will and his emotions have been corrupted by sin so that mankind is totally without spiritual life. It means that because of sin, we are dead in our sin. Yesterday, I... Drove through a cemetery just for a minute, read a little under shade, prayed some. I heard the shooting of the 21 gun salute, the plane of taps up on the hill always touches me so deeply. Thank God for a veteran. And that veteran, man or woman, had just recently died and been buried on that hillside over there. Now, 
that man or that woman in his or her coffin has joined people in that cemetery, some who've been there for a hundred years. They're all dead. They're not the same in the physical reality of death as one dead three days is not the same complete physical reality to the body as someone dead a hundred years, but they're all equal in this. They're all dead. They don't have life. And this is what depravity means. It means not that, all, that people are as bad as they could be or everybody's equally bad, but it means as far as spiritual life is, has to do, we don't have spiritual life. What's the Bible says? Apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Not just sick. Not just weak. We're dead. Lazarus dead. Graveyard dead. When it comes to spiritual life. That's what depravity means. And Paul, to prove his point, strings together in verses 10 to 18 six direct quotations from the Old Testament. Why does he do this? Why am I so glad as a preacher today that he did it? For this reason. People don't like to be told they're dead. I mean, if somebody just walked up to you and said, Hey, you know you're a zombie. You're a dead man walking. There's pieces falling off of you. You got parts coming off you like a junkyard vehicle. That's not really nice. No. And Paul knew that. So where did he go? He went to the Old Testament. And it's like Paul is saying, this is kind of hard. Let me quote the Bible. You know, as they said, when it gets tough in the pulpit, read the Bible. <laughs> Six direct quotations. Like a prosecutor to prove that human beings, when it comes to spiritual life, whether they are Jew or Gentile, they're not naturally possessors of spiritual life. But they are, in reality, dead. Apart from God. To emphasize this, notice what Paul says. Look at verse 10. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Who are you talking about, Paul? Jews and Gentiles. Everybody in themselves, none is righteous, no, not one. There's none. Notice verse 11. There's none that understands. No one seeks for God. 
no one understands. That is, no one is really willing to understand. It's not that they don't understand in their mind God's truth in creation and in their conscience and in the scriptures as they've been given them. But what happens? Verse 18, chapter 1. They suppress that truth. You see that? Remember that? So that now, even though they knew God, verse 21, chapter 1, they didn't honor Him as God. And their minds became darkened. None seeks after God. Before any person, listen carefully, before any person begins to seek God, God first seeks that person. Here's what the pastor, writer, A.W. Tozer wrote in his classic book, 1948, The Pursuit of God. Listen carefully. Before a man can seek God, God must first have sought that man. We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurns us to that pursuit. Any man or woman, what this means, any man or woman left to himself will not seek God. Will not of himself seek God. But will actually run from God to his or her own ways. Now there's objection to what is total depravity here. And here's an objection. It's Heard all the time, even in churches. Well, listen. You know that we have a free will. Don't you know that we have a free will? God has given all of us a free will. Don't we have a free will? You know what the answer to that question is? Yes. You have a free will... To act according to your nature. You have a free will to be who you are. You don't have a free will to be who you are not. You may say, no, 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 Sam. I'm, I'm free as a bird, okay? Let's take you up in an airplane without a parachute. See how free you are as a bird. Go ahead. You first. <laughs> Not hardly. You don't have the nature of a bird, so you can't be a bird. You have freedom of your will, but your will is bound to you. And your will is under the power of sin. Augustine, the great church father, made this statement when he was having to battle a heresy taught by Pelagius, Pelagian, Pelagianism as it's called today. That man is sick, but man can choose. Man can choose to save himself. Augustine said this, Non posse, non peccare. 
Aren't you impressed by the two years of Latin I had in high school? <laughs> non posse, non picare. He said, here's the condition of mankind apart from God. Listen carefully. Here's the translation. Not able not to sin. We are not able not to sin because of our nature. Paul sums up the total of any person's character apart from God this way. He says, no one does good, not even one. And don't you, don't you read that maybe in your mind? You go, really, Paul? Really? No one does good, not even one? Really, how can you say that, Paul? Because his answer is the standard for good. No one does good, not even one, based on the real standard of good. Not your standard or my standard, but God's standard. You know, when I was in high school, I had the privilege of being there during a time of an incredible team. And for two years, our high school was one of the outstanding teams in the state of Indiana. Seven years later, as a student pastor, I was coaching a Christian high school team at the church where I served in Finley, Ohio. And somebody might say to me, say, hey, Pastor Sam, you got a good team? I'd say, yeah, they're pretty good <laughs> compared to the other teams in the Buckeye Christian School Association. But in my head, I know not one of them would have ever played for Newcastle. They would never have made it. But compared to who they're playing, they're pretty good. But Newcastle beat them by 500 points. <laughs> they wanted to. So is that what I'm supposed to tell the parents of my team? Are you kidding me? <laughs> goodness is based. What's goodness based on? The standard of God. Hey, have you ever asked yourself, where's the, where's the word good come from? Our word good, Anglo-Saxon heritage, it comes from the word God. God. Goodness comes from the same root as God. The idea was Godness, Godlikeness. So goodness was always measured to God. <laughs> They're a goodly person, <laughs> meaning godly person. But if God's the standard, if, if the God is the standard for me on what is good, well, I'm not very good compared to the standard of good. And that's what Paul's saying. There's none good. No, not one. You say, I, don't, I just don't know about this, Sam. Okay, I'll give you an opportunity. Go ask the finest Christian you know. Call him on the phone. Write them a letter. Text them if there's, you can still get to them. Ask the finest Christian you know 
are you good? And the response from that person you truly believe and justly believe is good, that person will say probably something like the Russian, what the Russian poet Turgenev said. Here's what he said, quote, I do not know what the heart of a bad man looks like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. A woman used to follow the saintly preacher G. Campbell Morgan. She used to tell him what a great man he was, what a good man he was. And finally, Dr. Morgan could take it no more. And he said to the lady after the service, when she said, you're such a good man. And he said, in his British way, I assure you, madam, if you could look into my heart, you would spit in my face. I want to ask you if before we had communion this morning, we showed on the screen every thought, every word, every deed of every person in this auditorium before communion. What do you think would be? I'll tell you why. It'd be a bunch of people follow me out of this place. We don't want that. Why is that? Because we know, we know in our hearts, apart from God, we're not good. God is good. What did Jesus say? There is none good but God. Paul describes the mirror of truth, the, the character of God, and the conduct of mankind's condition. How does he describe this conduct? We finish quickly here. Two areas of conduct. What are, what's mankind known for? Number one, evil words. Number two, violent actions. Evil words. Violent actions. Evil words, verses 13 to 14. Listen to Paul. He's quoting scripture. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What did Jesus say? What are we told? Through his word that out of the out of the what? Comes all issues. Where do those issues of the heart come out? Out of the mouth. The heart speaks. Violent actions. History of the world. Here's the history of the world. The feet, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are fruit. Our, our thirds are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. The history of the world 
is a history of violence to each other. Violence between the image bearers of God. What about the history of America? I love our country with all my heart. I love our country. And I'm sure that people here from other countries and are listening, you love your country. We hear a lot about American exceptionalism. As if we are better. What about America? Violence to each other. This week I was thinking about the number of deaths in America by murder. So I started investigating a little bit. Let me share something with you this way. The population of the United States in America in 1900, listen carefully, the population of the United States in 1900 was 76 million people. The murders in the United States since 1900, 1,360,000 murders. Abortions in the United States since 1900, approximately 75 million. What that means, there have been more violent deaths in the United States by murder and abortion since 1900 than the entire population of the United States in 1900. Over 76 million violent deaths in our country in the last 122 years. Amen, my brother. Now, what's the cause of all this? You say, what, what's the cause of all this? And when we know the cause, then we're ready for the good news, right? Verse 18, here's the cause. The cause of this, there's no fear but God before their eyes. The eyes here has to do with understanding, evaluation. What it means this is the greatest sin is not to deny God's existence. The greatest sin is not to deny God His existence. The greatest sin is to deny God His honor. That's the greatest sin. To know of Him, know about Him, and deny His honor. Without the fear of the Lord. You see, that's what the fear of the Lord is. The honor of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, we become fearful of all things. When we don't have the fear of God, we fear all things. And the loss of all things. And what happens when we don't have God? We become fearful things. Without God, we ourselves become fearful things. Listen carefully, friends. Listen. The fear of God saves you from yourself. 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why? The fear of God saves you from yourself. You see this mirror of God's law. All leads to to take a good look at the mirror. We've looked in the mirror. Take a good look at the mirror. Now we know that whatever the law says, and he's been quoting it, it says those who are under the law, so that why? Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held countable before God. The law of God, God's standard, and the reality of our sin brings everybody under the same curse. Do you understand that? Now, what's the purpose of the law? You see, the law wasn't given. Notice, look at verse 19. Does it say the law was given for salvation? No. The law was given not to save people. The law was given to show people they need to be saved. The law wasn't given to save anybody. The law was given to show people they don't measure up. They don't meet the standard. We've all sinned and what? Come short of the standard of God, His glory. But now notice this. What the law has as its purpose, the law is powerless to change. The law can, God's law, listen, God's law can show you you're a sinner. But that pure law is powerless to save you. Why? Because that law condemns you. You say, God's law is powerless for a sinner? Well, read verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be declared not guilty in his sight. Why? Through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. So what is God's law? Listen. You say, Sam, did it take you this long to get here? Yes. God's law is a mirror. And the mirror of God's law shows you that your face is dirty, Judith Eli, Judah Eli. But that law, that mirror that shows you your face is dirty, you can't wash your face with that mirror. You need something to wash away. That dirt, that sin... You don't find that in God's pure law. You don't find it in yourself. So where do you find? You've got to look where? You've got to look as a hopeless lawbreaker for someone who can save you from the law that you've broken. Enter Jesus. (laughs) You see what he did? He came to those who could not save themselves, to those who had broken the law. And on the cross, the judgment of their sin, breaking the law, 
was put on him. God did not just say, forget about it. God did not forget about your sin. Even if you're a Christian, listen carefully. How did God forget about your sin if you're a Christian? He put it on Jesus. And Jesus paid it all. We owe it all to Him. We look to Christ. And you see, what has Paul done? What's God done through Paul? Do you believe this is God speaking through Paul? Or is Paul just a cranky Jewish rabbi? No, he's hemming everybody in. He's using all he knows of the Scripture. All of his years of teaching the law. Everything that he knows as an orator. Everything he knows as a philosopher. And he is hemming you in. As he himself was hemmed in. There's no hope in all of this. I will tell you where you got to look. You got to look to the man who met me on the road to Damascus. And saved me. Jesus Christ the Messiah. Crucified. Risen again. Who is he? John said this. Of his fullness. We have all received. Grace upon grace. For the law was given. Through Moses. Grace. And truth. Through Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, truth and grace kissed each other in the crucified Messiah. And God satisfied, was satisfied with Jesus' perfect life as a payment for sinners. And sinners have their need of a substitute to take their place. Grace and truth have met in Christ. Friend, there's no place else to look. But here's the gospel. You don't need any place else to look. You say, it can't be this easy. 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 The Son of God in agony and blood for you and me. Easy. Not easy. But free, yes, free. A gift. You try to buy this Bible, you can't have it. I want to give you this Bible. Well, Sam, I'll, I'll give you $5. No, you can't have it. Well, I'll, I'll mow your yard. <laughs> well, thank you, but you can't have it. What can I do for you? You can't do anything. 
I give you this Bible as a gift. If it's truly a gift, listen. You could offer $10 trillion and you couldn't have it as a gift. What would you have to do? Just receive. Receive it freely. And that's the grace of God in Christ. Freely. Freely. And friend, it's that hopelessness. It's that dark cave of despair where we see the light. Have you seen the light today? I pray that God in His grace leads you to the light. This is probably the longest sermon I've ever preached. You say, oh, several of them recently. You know. I know. It takes a while when you got something to say that you don't want to be misunderstood. My friend, if I had a particle of a hope to give to you about what you could do, I'd give it to you. But there's no room in this book for that. It hems us in and points us to one place, Jesus. Will you receive him? Doug, come. Let's bow our heads. Let's stand. I truly am, brothers and sisters, I truly am grateful. I'm, I'm quite certain probably, <laughs> probably the live stream feed wasn't enough time but I'm thankful for your listening but I'm praying and I've been praying that some this morning some listening would see no hope but for the first time they would see hope in Jesus and his free grace All the glory goes to Jesus. Amen, church? Marvelous grace. Infinite grace.